Hey guys, and welcome to Before Amber, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Lady Amy. Today's case I've heard of since I was a kid, and I thought I knew it well enough, but apparently there was way more to the case than I ever knew, and it ended with a bombshell I knew nothing about. Totally was not expecting. Just a warning, this episode does discuss sexual abuse of minors and human trafficking. Listener discretion is advised. So let's get into today's case. It's actually the first milk carton kid, Johnny Gosh. Johnny was born on November 12, 1969, to Noreen Gosh and John Gosh Sr. Johnny was a paperboy in West Des Moines, Iowa. He took over his older brother's route when he was old enough. He wanted the job because he wanted to earn money to buy a dirt bike, which he did do. He and his brother loved going out and riding in the fields. Johnny was described as kind and thoughtful. He enjoyed everything. His mom described him as just joy. Johnny would do his paper route with a wagon and his dog Gretchen. On the morning of September 5th, 1982, Johnny set out to do his normal paper route. Normally, his dad would go with him to help on the weekends, but for some reason, this particular Sunday, he didn't. When he was out on his route, a witness named John Rossi said, that he saw Johnny talking to someone in a car on 42nd Street. Johnny said to him, quote, This guy needs help. Can you help him? End quote. When Rossi approached the car to help the man, the car made a quick U-turn and sped away. Rossi thought it was very strange and was unsure why someone would do that. Noreen would say in interviews that a witness told her, Johnny said, there's something wrong with that guy. Quote, I'm scared. End quote. Either way, Johnny couldn't or didn't want to help the person in the car, and when an adult would get involved, the driver got the heck out of Dodge. A few minutes later, another carrier saw Johnny walking and said that he saw a man come out of the trees and start following Johnny. A few minutes after that, two other carriers passed Johnny as he was standing on a corner. When they walked back past a couple minutes later, Johnny's wagon was there, but Johnny was gone. From everything I can find, the dog was not found with the wagon, but she did turn up later in a yard so she was okay. By most accounts, all of this was happening in the span of about 12 minutes. Basically, all these boys pick up their papers from the same spot, then head off in different directions to their routes. So that's what's kind of happening in this area at this moment. Around the same time, a man heard some noise outside of his house, so he looked out his window and he saw a car speeding away that even ran a stop sign as it was making a turn onto another road. Johnny's wagon was found basically right outside this guy's house. So right off the bat, we have five different people that saw Johnny or something strange going on that morning. There are other accounts from boys that said there was someone asking directions that morning. After a while, some sources say an hour, others say two. We're not really for sure how long it was. But at some point that morning, Johnny's parents started to get calls from the neighbors asking where their papers were. If you weren't around pre-internet, let me tell you, the paper was a big deal, especially the Sunday edition. It had all the major news, the good colorful comics, and all the weekly ads and coupons for the local stores. At first, his parents thought Johnny must have just overslept, so his mom went to wake him, but he wasn't there. This made them worried, so John Sr. got in the car and went to go look for him. He found his wagon, but not Johnny. When John Sr. was gone, Noreen said that she was making breakfast when she just got this overwhelming feeling that something was wrong. You know, that motherly gut instinct. They called the police as soon as they found the wagon, but they said it took the police about 45 minutes to arrive. 
and right away it was clear that they weren't going to be very helpful. They, of course, said, quote, Has your son ever run away before? End quote. Not, could he have run away, or do you think he had run away? No, they said, has he ever ran away before? That right there tells you they thought he was a runaway. They had five witnesses that said there was a suspicious activity in the area that morning. Twice people were speeding away, and you have a wagon sitting there with a missing boy, yet the police said, quote, there is no crime scene, end quote. I'm sorry, what do you call that wagon? Could it not be evidence? That location is a starting point. As for the people in the cars that morning, police just said they were witnesses and they would like to find them to get their account of what they may have seen. They never said they were people of interest. Police said it wasn't strange for people to ask paper boys for direction. There is probably truth to this. Back in the day, we didn't have the stranger danger and paper boys knew their neighborhoods better than most. Don't get me wrong, I love the police. I'm very thankful for what they do, so please don't think I'm hating on cops, but this episode, it will sound that way. This police department was crappy. That's the nicest way for me to put it. Based on witnesses, his parents believe he was forced into a stranger's car around 6 a.m., not long after he started his route and went missing just two blocks from his house. News of Johnny's disappearance spread pretty quickly, but the police wouldn't do anything. They were the only ones that thought Johnny was a runaway. No one else thought this. Thousands of people went searching for Johnny, but the police didn't do a single search. Ron Sampson, the president of Help Find Johnny Gosh Foundation from 1982 to 1993, said they were reading in the papers and seeing that the police weren't doing anything, so they felt that someone had to help do something. Something needed to be done. So even the public seeing that the police aren't doing anything. So the people of the neighborhood came out and helped. They came in full force. They sold candy bars at the local mall to help raise money for the searches and the PIs that the family had to hire since the police weren't doing anything. The mall actually donated the booth and space for the sale of this candy. The drill team and other students volunteered their time to sell the candy. So the community came together to help. On November 5th, 1982, the family made flyers and mailed them to the different police departments all over the country at their own expense and time. They did this to get the word out because no one else was. They did get a few leads that their PIs followed up on because, of course, the police still did not believe there was a crime. Spoiler, to this day, they pretty much still think that, at least those that were on the force back in that time period. They actually told Noreen that until she can prove Johnny was in danger, he was going to be treated like a runaway. Imagine the police telling you that. I myself probably would have gone into mama bear mode and probably been arrested for hitting an officer. The case went cold pretty quickly. Searches died off. Noreen asked the police chief, Orville Cooney, when the FBI was going to get involved to help. They told her they didn't need them because there wasn't a crime. Noreen was so aggressive and advocated for her son so hard and so much that officers that were on the case wanted off the case. No one wanted to deal with her. Noreen and the chief of police did not get along. There was more than once that he had been heard saying negative things about her and Johnny's case. She felt he was corrupt, among other things. She wasn't wrong. He was pretty corrupt, among other things. Investigations into complaints about him, not only just from her, but other officers. There was investigations before Johnny's case and after his case. 
He left the force in 1983 because of medical issues, but the damage to Johnny's case was already done. Because of him, no one really cared about it when it came to the officers' opinions of it. Noreen and John Sr., especially Noreen, became huge advocates for missing children. When the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children was founded in June of 1984, the Goshes were there among the other families. On July 1st, 1984, the Johnny Gosh Bill was signed into law. This bill required law enforcement to act immediately when a minor was reported missing in Iowa. In January of 1984, a woman in either Oklahoma or Texas, sources aren't super clear, I've seen both, said she reported seeing two men chasing a young boy down the street when he ran up to her and said, quote, please lady help me. My name is John David Gosh, end quote. Just as he said this, one of the men grabbed him, twisted his arm behind his back, and drug him away. This incident had actually happened 10 months earlier. She didn't come forward because she didn't know about Johnny's case, nor that he was missing. She went to the police as soon as she had seen something about the case and recognized Johnny as the boy she saw that day. In the early morning hours of February 22nd, 1984, the phone was ringing at Noreen's house. When she picked it up, someone said, Mom? She thought it did sound like Johnny, but that he sounded slurred like he might be drugged. Police, of course, told her they could not trace the call. Given that it was such a short call, they probably couldn't. Then on August 14th, 1984, history repeated itself. A second paper boy that worked for the same paper went missing. In the early morning hours, Eugene Martin was delivering his papers when he disappeared. Witnesses said they saw him talking to a man in a car. At this point, the FBI finally got involved, but police to this day say the cases are unrelated. I will cover Eugene Martin's case in the future, but from what I know about his case, I don't see how they aren't related in some way. When I get to research in depth, maybe I'll find out I'm wrong. We'll see. In September of that year, a local dairy company came up with the idea to put the two boys' faces on milk cartons to spread the word of their stories to help get their faces out there so someone might recognize them and be able to help bring them home. This is the beginning of the milk carton campaign. Both Johnny and Eugene were shown side by side on the milk. With time, others' images were placed on the milk to help with their disappearances as well. As time went on, the Goshes didn't give up hope. They went on TV. Any chance they got to spread the word about their missing son, they took it. In 1985, a dollar bill surfaced with a handwritten note on it allegedly from Johnny, that said, quote, I am alive, end quote, and it was signed Johnny Gosh. Noreen believes that it was Johnny's handwriting, but of course there was no way to confirm that. A man named Kenneth Wooden learned about Johnny's case. He is a child safety expert and child advocate. He heard about the case and he believed that Johnny was a victim to child pedophile. He said, quote, if the dog was still there, then the boy wasn't a runaway, end quote. In this time in history, the term pedophile wasn't really heard of. It was new when he was advocating and getting to know the goshes. People kept asking him, what's this pedophile? What's a pedophile? I've never heard this word. That's how brand new of a term it was and how innocent of a time this was. As soon as Noreen heard about child pedophiles, a light bulb clicked with her. She knew this was what had happened to Johnny and maybe even Eugene. She started being not only an advocate for the missing children and warning people, but she started advocating for the victims of human trafficking. 
Although at that time, that's not what it was called. It didn't have a name. The problem is no one wanted to hear it. No one wanted to believe that this was happening. Parents and children were already scared after the two boys went missing. They didn't want to have more fears. They just could not believe that this was something that actually happened. I would like to think that maybe if people believed more back then, it wouldn't be as big of a problem now. But sadly, I think the world is just that evil. Nine years after Johnny went missing in 1991, Noreen got another phone call. But this one was not like the others. Noreen received a call from a PI in Nebraska. He said he worked for a lawyer whose client was in prison for child molestation, but that this inmate actually had said that he played a part in the kidnapping of Johnny. They had interviews taped and they wanted to visit her and play them for her. Of course, she jumped at this. She was like, yes. This man's name was Paul Bonacci. Paul himself had been a victim of child sex trafficking. Noreen couldn't believe what she was hearing. A mixture of feelings had rushed through her. She was hopeful that Johnny was still alive, but she was angry and hurt and scared and confused. She actually went and spoke with Paul face to face. Paul had said there's a much bigger ring at play. There was a ring of high elites. Think Jeffrey Epstein before Jeffrey Epstein. I'm going to go into as little details as possible in this episode because one, it's something I don't want to research in depth in. I don't want to know details. I don't want to talk about it. To this day, also, many of the allegations involved in his statements are still alleged and never confirmed in the court of law. Anyways, Paul said he was forced by a leader called Emilio to help commit the kidnapping. Apparently, they had kind of watched the paper boys and picked Johnny out as the one that they wanted to take. Paul said he wasn't sure why they picked Johnny. His guess was because of his age, body type, hair color, eye color, things like that. Paul said he had two jobs. The first one was to get out and ask Johnny a question. Being close in age to Johnny, Johnny probably wouldn't have any uncomfortable feelings. He would just think, oh, it's just another kid asking me a question. No big deal. But while Paul would ask him a question, another man who he called Tony came up behind Johnny and pushed him into the car. Paul's second job was to then put a rag with what he assumed was chloroform over Johnny's face until he passed out. They then drove the car out of town and switched vehicles at some point. Noreen was stunned by what she had heard, but she believed Paul. Paul told her he had been forced to do stuff to Johnny. He had been forced to watch stuff happen to Johnny. He said he told Johnny to just do what they say and it would be okay even when it was scary. Paul said basically he tried to be Johnny's comfort at times. Paul said that Johnny had said something to him about meditating or something like that, where he could escape his mind and relax. It was something that his mom taught him when he would go to class with her. Noreen's jaw hit the floor at this. You see, at the time of the documentary, Who Took Johnny, which was one of our sources, it was recorded in 2012. At that time, Noreen had been a yoga instructor for 40 years. However, this was something that the media at the time did not know. It was never made public what her profession was, and it was never made public that she had taught Johnny this stuff, that Johnny had gone to classes with her and learned meditation and how to just kind of relax whatever situations he's in and block it out. So Paul, knowing that, really made her feel like he was telling the truth. It wasn't like he could stalk her social media account back then and see what her profession or interest were. Paul also knew other stuff about Johnny that made his story more believable. 
First, he knew of the birthmark, which was kind of a little bit made public. Some people knew about this birthmark, but he knew about other things that hadn't been made to the public, like different scars that Johnny had. Noreen felt Paul was legit, and her heart actually broke for him because he was a victim too. He said Johnny had been sold to a man in Colorado named the Captain. He said he had seen Johnny off and on over the years at different places where boys were kept hidden away or moved around the country from time to time. As soon as the stuff came out, news broke about Paul and this alleged knowledge of Johnny and his involvement in the kidnapping. A photojournalist named Mike Ballard helped do an interview of Paul. He said Paul seemed authentic to him, too. Part of Paul's confessions connected Johnny's kidnapping to an alleged network of human traffickers based nearby in Omaha, Nebraska. This kind of started to get big. John Walsh said Paul was an intriguing individual. America's Most Wanted host and America's Most Wanted covered the case in 1992. They couldn't believe everything that Paul was saying. It was believable, but it was still questionable because all the leads ended. They couldn't proceed further once they got to a certain point. He told them about a house that had a hidden underground room where the boys were hidden away from police or others. He talked about the boys being branded with a mark. When he says branded, I think he really meant like a tattoo. They weren't actually burned. The best way to describe this to y'all, it was an X with like the mouth of a smiley face right under it. The producers and John Walsh were shocked at some of the stuff he was telling them. This just, like I said, couldn't be real. Again, human trafficking just wasn't a thing back then. But after the show aired, they started getting all these calls from men and boys all around the country, telling their stories, their connection to this, showing them this branded tattoo. The people of America's Most Wanted were floored. They think that Paul's telling the truth. But like I said, everything that he told them, it would get to a certain point and then just stall out. Like he could do a sketch, but they had no one to compare that sketch to. They couldn't find the owner of this house. So because they had circumstantial evidence, but nothing that went everywhere, police couldn't do anything. What about the police, you might say? Now that all this is coming out, they're bound to start looking at Johnny's case, right? Nope. To this day, they have not talked to Paul. The FBI has not talked to Paul. They all still say that Paul's not credible. They all still say that Johnny's a runaway. The Des Moines police did go and talk to Paul's siblings. Not Paul, his siblings. Ten years after the abduction, the siblings told them that Paul was home the day of the kidnapping. One, the drive isn't that long, like a couple hours. He could have gone there and come back without them even noticing it. Two, this was 10 years later. I don't know what my siblings did yesterday. There's no way I know what they did 10 years ago. The police said that the siblings' statements was proof enough that Paul wasn't telling the truth. Is smoke coming out of your ears like it is mine? This PD, I just don't have words for them. People were arrested in something called the Franklin Credit Union scandal as part of this alleged sex ring that Paul reported. The charges, though, for the sex ring and human trafficking, it didn't make it past the grand jury. But a man named Lawrence King was found guilty of embezzlement in connection to this Franklin Credit Union scandal. Who was Lawrence King? I'm just going to say he was apparently the Jeffrey Epstein of this ring, this alleged ring. Again, this whole thing is alleged. Nothing has been proven in a court of law. Mr. King was a high-profile person back in the day, The only reason I'm even giving you his name was because in 1999, Paul filed a civil suit against him in regards to 
abuse that he had received in this sex ring. Paul suffered several mental issues diagnosed by doctors that all said it was from years of sexual abuse from being trapped in this ring. Mr. King did not show up for the trial for the civil court case. After testimony and everything, the judge ruled in Paul's favor and awarded him $1 million. But of course, he has never seen a penny of that money. But now let me tell you another reason why Noreen believed Paul so much. Noreen was called to testify in the civil trial on behalf of Paul. And they asked her, have you seen or heard from your son in all the years that he has been missing? And she stayed quiet, which for Noreen, that was kind of odd. But anyways, well, the judge told her, you have to answer the question or you'll be held in contempt of court. Now, I thought she was going to say something like she sees him in her dreams or something like that. You hear people not wanting to answer questions on lie detector tests because subconsciously they feel guilty or they feel like they see them in their dreams or they feel like they know where they are based on guts. But Noreen answered, yes, just once. Y'all, my jaw hit the floor. I was WTF. Here is a woman who has been advocating for years for missing children and the search for her son. And now she is saying that she has seen him and spoken to him. So here's what her story is. She says two years before the trial, on or around March 18th of 1997, someone started knocking on her door late at night. She wanted to ignore it, that they would go away, but she said it just got louder and more persistent. She looked to the peephole and saw two men standing there. She asked who it was, and one man said, it's me, mom. She opened the door to see a young man standing there who she says was Johnny. She said she knew it was him because his eyes... She said, quote, eyes don't change, end quote. This man had Johnny's eyes. The two men came inside, spent about an hour to two hours talking to her. The man that said he was Johnny showed her a birthmark on his chest to help prove that it was him. Johnny told her about the sex trafficking ring and some of the stuff that he had been stuck in, but he was also kind of aloof with the details. Everything he was saying lined up with what Paul was saying. He said he had escaped and was in hiding and was going to stay in hiding, that if they ever found out he visited her or ever found him, they would kill him. He would not tell her where he was going or anything like that. He told her, don't tell anyone. So for two years, she didn't tell anyone and she wouldn't have told anyone if she wasn't forced to when she was testifying. After the trial, she said that she should have stayed quiet and been held in contempt because all hell broke loose. I can understand this. If I'm watching this documentary and looking into the case years later and I'm dumbfounded and floored, I can only imagine how the people who had been involved in the case from the beginning reacted. She told people that she never said anything because he asked her not to. In 2006, Noreen got photos of boys that were tied up. She believed that one of them was Johnny. She traced it to a website that was quickly shut down. She turned these pictures into the authorities and to the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children who tried to do facial recognition, but the angles of the pictures and the size, the quality just wasn't good enough for any kind of recognition. As of the recording of the documentary, Who Took Johnny? from 2012, Paul says Johnny has visited him at least 15 times. He says Johnny is doing well, has a family of his own, and still wants to stay in hiding, that he will never come out of hiding. Paul said, quote, he'd be killed. That's what he's afraid of. He'd be silenced, end quote. Noreen believes Paul. John Sr. says he doesn't know what happened to Johnny. 
Him and Noreen actually divorced back in 1993. The stress of Johnny's kidnapping just ended up being way too much for the couple. They both still love and miss Johnny, though. What do I think happened to Johnny? Well, after researching this case, I don't know anymore. All my life, I figured and thought Johnny was probably killed shortly after his kidnapping. But being older now and knowing the evils of this world, Paul's story actually seems pretty believable to me. In all this time, Paul's story has never wavered. It's been consistent. If you're lying, that is extremely hard to do. As for Noreen's story, I don't know if that's true. I'm not saying she's a liar, but I know grief and your mind can play tricks on you. I would like to think that it's true that Johnny did come visit her. I'd like to hope Johnny is out there living a new life, but I don't know. Unless he comes forward out of hiding, if he is in hiding, we'll never know. But it is nice to have the hope that he has a family and that he's out there. Okay, that's all for the story of Johnny Gosh, guys. If you don't already, please like, follow, or subscribe, depending on where you listen. Please leave a five-star review, as it really does help the podcast grow. If you have a case you want us to cover, send an email to beforeamberpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us across all social media at beforeamberpod. There's also now a Before Amber group on Facebook, not just the page where you can interact more, ask questions, send requests, things like that. We will be back in two weeks to remember someone else. Until next time, thanks for listening. Later. All sources are listed in our show notes, but some of those sources include newspapers.com, the documentary Who Took Johnny, CNN.com, Inside Edition, and America's Most Wanted. Later.